Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I look forward to having your company here on 3RRR 102.7 on this absolutely beautiful spring morning. You better get out now and enjoy it because rain is on the way. Um, here at Triple R, we're incredibly COVID safe. There are only three of us in the studio, and I can assure you that no one at Triple R climbs over the rooftops to sneak in. <laughs> so our regular panelist, Prudence dear, is cooling her to heels at home. So very good morning to you, Prudence. I'm joined in the studio today by the only man in the Southern Hemisphere actually capable of multitasking, panel beater. <laughs> I wish that was the case. I'm notoriously hopeless at it. <laughs> well, you're managing very well with the microphone and the panel. Well done. Are you, are you working from home the whole time? Absolutely. I'm doing a lot of screen time, either meetings or teaching online. Oh, yep. Yeah. Well, I, we just say to people, hang on in there. I yeah. reckon somewhere around Christmas time, before, <laughs> during, after, but I don't reckon we can get much relief before then. So grit our teeth. <laughs> and completing the studio triad, we have misdiagnosis. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Beautiful to be here. What a lovely day. Isn't it fantastic? Now, you're delivering babies at one of our major hospitals. How's that going in COVID? I mean, are partners allowed in there? Oh, it's really complicated, Dr. Nick. I mean, there are all sorts of visitor restrictions and to be honest, they change almost Mm. in a weekly manner at the moment. We are lucky that we can have people in while women are actually physically giving birth, but um, there are limited visitor restrictions, which makes it really difficult. And we've got a lot of patients who want to get home early because of that. Quick question, Miss Diagnosis. How how are those changes communicated to staff? Because there's (laughs) obviously shifts going on and is it a notice board? Is it some kind of tech channel? Is it email so newsletter? We we get um, you know we get the sort of standard twenty five emails a day from uh. the executive about various things that are changing. Um, but most of the time, we've got really incredible nurse unit managers or midwife managers who will manage the units and will communicate those changes to us. And most of the time, I defer to them and I say have a chat with them because they're much more up to date than I am with it. it it's a really great great question, though, panel beta. And I think this is one of the things people out there perhaps don't realise is how quickly everything changes in health settings and yeah. not just health settings, of course, but um, we set up a, a WhatsApp group for our doctors and staff so that all the changes go out immediately on a WhatsApp group. Um, and just I keep misdiagnosis, <laughs> 10 messages a day and I barely keep up with them. Anyhow, um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to a woman I met in the dog park this morning with a little puppy, a little baby Shih Tzu, a little ball of fluff called Taco. Uh, and to Taco's owner, I hope you are now a new listener to 3RRR. And if you are, you could become a subscriber. And this is a reminder that Radiothon might be over, uh, but subscriptions are still welcome. You still go into the draw for the prizes. So anyone who hasn't subscribed, please, please, please support the station in isolation. You're rocked down in lockdown. That's 3RRR. Oh, look, we, this is Radiotherapy, and we have some fantastic guests for you today. I actually learned a new word from our second guest, and that word is sharenting. The growing trend of parents sharing news and images of their kids on social media. Now, Elise Byrne is a bioethicist and researcher from Queensland. She recently published a review article on this topic, looking particularly at the sharing of information around sick kids and their illness journeys. She'll be coming up later, and I think you'll find her fascinating. And, of course, this last week was Women's Health Week, so... Who better to have on the show than the author of a new book, The Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging, Professor Cassandra Zerka. Now, Cassandra is an incredible person. She's a neurologist, a researcher, and she's been at the helm of the longest ever longitudinal study of women's health here in Australia. I can't wait for this one. I know Miss Diagnosis has a particular interest in this area because she's a woman, a doctor, and very keen to age health. And a person. <laughs> Don't need to be a woman to be interested in women's health. <laughs> um, but before all that, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
Panel Beater, you've been looking at slightly political news this week. I um, I got really worked up during the week, as I sometimes do. <laughs> um, as, as opposed to all the other weeks. Yeah, that's right, exactly. This was a different type of worked up. I got um, news, as we all did, of um, that Pfizer had been in touch with Greg Hunt, mm-hmm. not in June 2021, but in June 2020, with Pfizer saying, hey, you might want to get ahead of the game. We're progressing really well on the vaccines. You want to place an advance order of millions. Mm-hmm. And um, to which the obvious answer is, oh, uh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, the <laughs> obvious answer is sure. But let's not go with obvious. Um, so he uh, left it basically lying and hand passed it to a, a, a bureaucrat without any decision making authority. So that got left, and we know the story. Um, uh, almost 18 months later, um, which reminded, which then meant that my eye was caught by news coming from France that the former health minister has been charged over her handling of the COVID crisis. And the charge formally is... Endang- in, fr- in French. In French. <laughs> <laughs> Endangering the life of others. Um, <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Um, yes, so she's been charged. She was also charged with failure to step up... Um, to stop a disaster, but the only charge she's going to be answering to is endangering the lives of others. Now, of course, the judicial system is different in um, France. Uh, we do have a ministerial responsibility code, um, and there is legislation for that here. Um, but in France, they've actually got a court of justice that was established in 1993 specifically for de- dealing with ministers who may be accused of negligence or corruption. She's going to face that court. Um, so just just to be clear, this will actually go to court, because we often hear about these sorts of codes and so on, but nothing ever seems to happen. She's going to court, but so is the former Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe. And um, uh, so he's being called to answer as well. In the meantime, the, so different jurisdiction, uh, legal jurisdiction, of course, but the thing in common and the thing that I'm looking forward to seeing is if there are any repercussions for our government in Australia. Both France and Australia are going to national elections, federal elections here, obviously, um, uh, next year. And um, while there's no doubt that Hunt won't face a judge anytime soon, if at all, um, the court of the electorate might have something to say about it. Maybe not, though. <laughs> there seems to be a bit of Teflon around. That is absolutely fascinating, Panel Beta, and the idea that in France they not just have the code, but they have a law and it's being acted on yeah. is really impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah I think it's wonderful. <laughs> yes. Well, watch this space. Uh, we'll see what happens with that one. Um, thank you, Panel Beta. And um, misdiagnosis, um, continuing the theme slightly but closer to home, what have you been looking at this week? Something a little bit squirmy. Dr. Nick, ivermectin, <laughs> <Okay>. yes, <laughs> which is, of course, the anti-parasite medication mm-hmm. that is used for things like uh, strongyloides, I believe. And Just uh, say that word again. Strongyloides. <laughs> those back home spell that one. <laughs> and riverworm blindness, things like this. So it's an anti-parasite medication mm-hmm. that has... Um, had a bit of a sort of time in the spotlight with some claims that it can kill the COVID vaccine. Now, the, the trials that showed that it could actually kill COVID were, of course, in a Petri dish at very high concentrations. And we know that if you put sort of anything at high enough concentration in a Petri dish, you can kind of do something with it. And just to be clear for listeners, Petri dish means in the laboratory on a, an agar plate. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So not in human trials. Mm. Now, because of these They claims, might have thought that Petri dish was uh, of a human volunteer. Oh, oh, Senor Petri, you're coming. <laughs> yes, Miss Dish. Yes. Sorry, carry on. Um, so, so what's happened with this essentially is that people are claiming that ivermectin is a good uh, treatment for COVID, which is is unfounded in human clinical trials, and it's resulted in a three to four increase in prescribing in Australia from practitioners of ivermectin. Which actually, the, the problem with this is people that need it for scabies and things like that, which are often Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander population, are having a lack of access to it because it's just not available. People People are stocking up on it and trying to use it to either cure COVID or prevent COVID. So what's happened recently is a, um, a new sort of legislation around the prescribing of it that means that general practitioners can only now prescribe it under certain guidelines, which is for parasitic infections like scabies. And then, of course, um, infectious diseases physicians can prescribe it for conditions as well. So so it's a new new change to the prescribing. Which I think is very interesting. Yes, I got that email telling me that if I wanted to prescribe it, it could only be for those conditions. So let's really nail this one on the head, misdiagnosis, because this is so important for listeners to understand, because there's so much mis- and disinformation out there. 
Ivermectin, as you said, was shown in a laboratory, just like anything else. If you pour alcohol on a Petri dish, it'll kill most things. It worked in a Petri dish. Is there any evidence that Ivermectin is an effective treatment for COVID infection? Not yet. Okay, so do not go to your doctor asking for ivermectin. Do not uh, pretend that you've got scabies so that you can get it because it's actually quite a toxic drug, isn't it? Yeah, and the concentrations that we're using are way, way above the concentrations that would be safe in humans. And there have been a lot of calls to the poison hotline about people taking too much ivermectin and causing themselves serious illness. So, you know, whether this in the future turns out to be a treatment for COVID, who knows? Like, we can't say that, it, you know, it won't be. But at the moment, there's absolutely no reason to be taking ivermectin for COVID. I mean, at the moment, I think the, the honest answer is there is no medication treatment. Swallowing bleach doesn't work. Taking ivermectin doesn't work. There's no known medication. The only effective way of helping yourself when you're a healthy person is to get vaccinated. It, the, the challenge, I guess, for people like yourself um, at the front line as a GP, Dr. Nick, is that there are some big profile people talking about using it. And you've got that N equals one factor you're absolutely right and um, we do get all sorts of calls and conversations with people who have been very persuaded um, uh, it comes down from my personal perspective just to know what I believe the science is and just to communicate very clearly um, I, I won't get into a conversation with people about the pros and cons and the, the details I just say no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fairly simple as that. Oh, look, enough COVID stuff. Um, surely we can be talking with Professor Cassandra Zerka about her new book, The Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging. I can't wait for this conversation. She'll be coming up with us right after these messages. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the phone, I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Cassandra Zerka. Good morning, Cassandra. Good morning, Dr. Nick. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've got so many titles and things that you do, it's just terrifying. But Because <laughs> you're a neurologist, aren't you? I am. I'm a neurologist by trade. And a researcher and a writer. So just tell us a bit about this book, um, what it's called and how it all came about. So look, the book I wrote was Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging. And I guess ultimately you've all probably heard a lot of things about healthy aging. And, you know, after 30 years of researching healthy aging at the university, we have two. And I think what we sought to do in this book were two things. Number one, it takes all the knowledge we have from our work, from others' work, from international meetings, and it synthesises it all to give you key tips for the best possible health. And the second thing it does is it doesn't just explore experiments on 12-week programs, three-month programs, so on, but we actually observed Australian women, several hundred of them, over 30 years <laughs> to report what actually worked best in the community. And there were some surprises. Yes, okay, so th I mean, this deserves repeating. You followed how many hundred women for 30 years? So there were almost 500 women at the outset, and more than half of us are still coming back to see us today, 30 years later, although we are doing telehealth now for safety. <laughs> And it, look, it's a really fantastic book. I was actually reading a bit of it last night. And one of the things I particularly enjoyed was um, the sort of inserts from women themselves. Like there's a lot of scientific research, but there's also some really interesting personal accounts in there. Was that um, something you put in deliberately to make the book more sort of accessible to a layperson reader? Well, do you know the reason I put that in? And, of course, it was agonising because we keep the secret identities of our women very, very protected. So I actually had to put comments in, do thematic analysis and then recreate comments so no one could be identifiable. But the reason I put them in was because that's what influenced me the most across the last 20 years I've been leading the program was the things they would say. You know, I've had the privilege of meeting many of these women. And, you know, it's those tips that you share that I felt was so influential in helping me to know the best things I could do for my health. So I just had to share them. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I noticed when I started reading the book is when we think about sort of women's health, often the thing that's jumped to is either bikini body health, how to look good during the summer, or reproductive health. But this book obviously is about so much more than that. Can you talk to that a bit? 
Yeah, well, look, as a neurologist, you can imagine maybe I'm a little biased. Uh, I believe uh, what defines a woman is her brain. Um, but also, I think, you know, I have had a lot of experience of going to women's health conferences and getting up to start talking. And when the picture of the brain comes up, everyone's very confused. Like, what is she talking about? This is a women's health conference. Um, so really, I have focused on everything except the bikini. There's many books out there on bikini health. In fact, if you look up a women's health book, it's probably focused on bikini health. And so really, what's important for women, if you look at the leading cause of death in our country of Australian women, the leading cause of death in this country. So if you're a woman, I'm a woman, uh, Australian woman, likely chances I'm going to die of dementia. That is the leading cause of death in this country, has been for years. Also the leading cause of death for women in UK. The second leading cause of death is heart disease. The third leading cause of death is strokes, which is a blood vessel disease going to the brain. So, you know, those are the things that are killing us. And yet somehow when you talk women's health, we never talk about those things. Yeah, funnily enough, nothing on that list is about um, wearing the wrong bikini or being the right size at the beach. It's it's really, yeah. It's, um, now, I'm really glad you brought up those points because one of the chapters that I was reading the other night that I found very interesting was your move chapter about physical activity. Now, we're sort of touted and sold at the moment that the most important thing for our health is almost high-intensity interval training. That's sort of getting out and getting, you know, that F45, getting really sweaty and really high heart rates for a very short period of time. But your book and the research that you've reported in that book shows something quite different, doesn't it? Yes. Well, look, you know, as doctors, we all know that that high-intensity activity, it really does give the best blood test results. It drops those cholesterols in the blood. It drops those sugars in the blood, that high-intensity exercise. And it also can remodel blood vessels from blood vessels that might have a little bit of um, clogging to make them less, you know, more patent and more open. So we're all into high-intensity exercise. But what was fascinated us, and it was against the hypothesis, we said, oh, the intense exercise, they're going to do the best. However, when we looked across 30 years, and look, very few studies have been able to do that it takes amazing individuals who persist with us for three decades to be able to even ask the question um, and when we looked it was the people who moved did activity each and every day and it wasn't the intense exercises just each and every day seven days a week and if i'm clear about it from what i read in your book it wasn't there was something wrong with high intensity exercise it was that people no. didn't keep it up that the, what, yes, it, it, it's the it persistence up. that matters that's right. And look, sometimes I think, and this goes for nutrition too, and then maybe it's going back to bikini health, we kind of bundle, bundle exercise, nutrition, all around losing weight. Sometimes they get confused. And, you know, high-intensity exercise can also drop weight quickly. But, you know, it's that persistent effect that is the most important. When we're, I mean, we're living to 100 now. So if you're going to look after your machine for 100 years, <laughs> you've got to do something each and every day. I think one of the statistics you had in your book was 15 minutes of exercise a day equals three years longer for your life. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've quoted some really brilliant studies from across the world. 15 minutes gave people three years. 20 minutes in another study gave people seven years. So, you know, I just say get out there and do stuff because whatever you're doing, you're, how much time is taking you, you're getting more years at the end. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the other things that you had at the start of that chapter, so it's got those, it's the way, just for listeners, the way it's written, you've got the title of the chapter and underneath the title are sort of five or six sort of top key take-home messages from the chapter itself, which makes it a very, very kind of satisfying read because you flagged what you're meant to be concentrating on before you even start the chapter. Um, and one of the things that was written up there was change your activity as your circumstances change. And I think that's such an interesting point, especially, you know, we've seen obviously vast change in the way that we're living in a society over the last couple of years, just with COVID alone, that the exercise that you were doing, you know, when you were younger, when you're at university, when you're sort of a young adult versus when you're in sort of middle age to late age can change. And that's a, a good thing that you shouldn't necessarily be trying to do the same things over the decades. Look, absolutely. I mean, every one of us knows that if we broke our leg, we couldn't go for a run. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, if when you break your leg, you say, well, I can't go for my run, so I'll do nothing, then you're not going to be in this group that's doing activity seven days a week every day. You have to adapt. And human beings are so beautifully adaptable. But, you know, there's another secret within that. And, you know, Dr. Nick, you're a GP, so you'll understand where I'm coming from. GPs have done some amazing research on guidelines. We have got guidelines for everything nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> certainly have guidelines for activity. Um, one of the things about guidelines is one size doesn't fit all people. 
So it's not like I can even tell you at 20 what to do and what to do it for. You know, it really depends on individuals, their circumstances, what's going on for them, what they love to do, because really, honestly, doing what you love to do is the best thing to do to keep it going forever. Um, and guidelines, unfortunately, are pretty much cookie cutters, one size fits all. And then we publish papers showing 12% of people adhere to guidelines, but it may well be because the guidelines aren't applicable to them. You're absolutely right. There are so many guidelines. Someone a few years ago wrote a guideline book about guidelines to guidelines, <laughs> which, which, of course, no one read. It went in the same path. Um, I just wanted to um, come to a couple of specifics. Um, you're a neurologist. You've written that there are three rules for a healthy brain. What are those? Well, look, the most important thing for a healthy brain is to move. Mm -hmm. That activity every day. And look, you've got to understand, we were looking at hypertension and cholesterol. I mean, these things are important. But it was just astounding that activity was just so good for brain health. So, of course, I started looking around because there had been this major international study that looked at population attributable risk for dementia. And they had, you know, been on the news because they said 50% of dementia was preventable. Um, and they had, you know, I think seven risk factors. So I went and looked at the study and um, I had to go into the supplementary data on the journal website. <laughs> and sure enough, I found the original table with each of the individual aspects and you know that column for physical activity was double the others so really even in other studies it's physical activity that's giving you some of the best benefits for the brain so can we just really emphasize that when we're talking physical activity you said earlier we don't necessarily have to do very much and i loved your phrase early in the book saying this this area is really complex it's not a walk in a park but then you said actually it is a walk in the park <laughs> <laughs> because just for a walk in the park that's yeah. right so, Look, think, so it really is that simple? I think what's simple is to do something every day. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, in, in the chapter Move, I actually detail the different sorts of exercises that people do, the different sorts of activities, not necessarily even exercise, things like balance, things like strengthening, um, because each of these, of course, gives you benefit. I mean, there's a reason why we're always banging on about activity that makes you breathe hard. All of these things do give you benefits. So I've really broken them down into what each of these aspects give you. And then when you need those aspects, that's what you should be looking at doing in addition to your walk in the park each day. So we've got three rules for a healthy brain. One of them is move, 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 move. What are the other two? The second is nutrition. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, what you eat and drink um, is actually quite important. The brain um, is really very high-paced and high um, met metabolises very quickly, so it needs lots of essential nutrients, and sometimes you don't get enough of those. And the brain is highly affected by blood supply. Mm -hmm. highly affected. I mean, so many of our organs, we can take out and ship them around in eskies um, across the city, no well, problems. Not mine, thanks very much. I'm, <laughs> I'm still using mine. <laughs> oh, we can, we can. They last, you know, 12 hours in eskies. Um, however, the brain doesn't even last seconds. I mean, the, it just, it really is totally reliant on blood supply. Now, we all know that sugar and fats in our diet can alter our blood supply through things like diabetes and through things like atherosclerosis, clogging up those vessels. So really, having a look at our nutrition as well as movement can really improve that. Then, of course, there's connection with other people, um, which is also about using it or losing it. If you don't use the brain, um, so people who become isolated and feel lonely, and that doesn't mean you can be alone. As long as you're not feeling lonely, um, that's good for you. Mental health is connected, of course, with the brain because it all comes from the same place. And, you know, a lot of people don't think about sleep. But mm -hmm. sleep's so important for brain health because it's really when we can see different brain waves happening. There's a lot of clearance, a lot of the byproducts of metabolism from our thinking during the day. So sleep's really important too. So we bang on about sleep all the time on uh, radiotherapy here. but Because be... you guys probably don't get enough of it. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, what would be your top tips for better sleep for people? Look, you know, sleep is such an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a little bit like stress when you say to people, don't, you know, you can't not get stressed if you're stressed. And yet mm. people often say don't get stressed. Um, and sleep is another one. You know, the more you stress about not sleeping, the worse you're probably going to have sleep. 
So look, the really important tips are to prioritise your sleep and to make sure that your bedroom is a place where you go to sleep and that you don't have the electronics and other things like televisions and so on in there because that can disrupt your sleep. And, you know, look, I know I'm speaking to a panel of doctors here, so, I, you know, talking about having a regular routine when anyone who does shift work, not just us, but there's a number of people out there doing shift work, it's very hard to talk about that because, of course, your sleep-wake cycles are entirely damaged when you do shift work. But really just prioritising um, sleep, making sure that your bedroom is mainly for sleep and um, making sure that you don't eat or drink just before bed because that can make you get up overnight. It's nearly half past ten here on 3RRR Radiotherapy. Me, Dr Nick and Panel Beta and Misdiagnosis in the studio. On the line we have Professor Cassandra Zerka, author of this new book, The Secrets of Women's Healthy Ageing. Cassandra, I want to ask you a specific, if I may, um, you've produced a wonderful acronym for dealing with stress and that acronym is HOME, H-O-M-E. Can you just take us through that and what HOME stands for? Yeah, so one of the things that surprised us in the study is we all know the data that as people get older and they get diseases, if you get a disease, your mood lowers. Um, If you lose someone, obviously your mood lowers and so on and so forth. Over 30 years, we were just flawed, uh, and we published this in a high-impact journal, that um, mood improved. Women were less likely to get depressed 30 years later than they were when they were younger. And we just couldn't understand this, so we looked a little closer and... What's really important is to stop stress turning into distress. And there's many protective mechanisms. And in fact, here at first, here on 3RRR, you get better with age. <laughs> Actually, you know, this is something of many things we might think we don't get better at. This, we really do get better with coping with stressors in our lives as as we get older. And so these women, were, even though their negative mood went up, of course, you know, over those 30 years they lost relationships, they lost people, they had more diseases or were caring for loved ones with diseases. But they were actually able, even though the negative mood went up, to using positive mood and social connections to reduce that distress and therefore based on validated clinical scars, they were less likely to have depression. So those, um, those ways to stop stress turning into distress include hope, okay. and that's around how we assess what happens. So what could we do differently? What could we not do differently? What can we learn from it? And really, it's about identifying prospects for improvement. So that's the hope. You know, that's that uh, we're in lockdown, but we're going to be free. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah, hope. Gonna be careful we there. Hope. Our, yeah, politicians have to realise hope is really important for us. So mm-hmm. please, please bring it back. Um, the second is opportunity. So that's the O, opportunity. So how do we categorise what happened? And, you know, I actually refer to um, a, Ch- a Chinese um, description of stress because they're so brilliant in the way they consider this as uh, talking about stresses as also opportunities. Mm-hmm. Because any time a stress is placed on a person, an organisation, a system, there are opportunities um, that... that can occur in that setting. So if we can look at the opportunity, um, you know, people who have written books like I did in lockdown or, you know, connected more with family, trying to see those opportunities, um, however small they are, is a really important part of not letting that distress flip over into distress, which is damaging for your health. Mm -hmm. Then the next one is M, and that is making change. And, you know, this is where it's really important in terms of sociodemographics. Making change is a crucial part of not letting stress become distress. And there's a lot of people who don't have the opportunity to make change. And, you know, that's, you know, with Afghanistan, we can see now, you know, if you're in a situation where you don't see the possibility of change, then really your stress is going to turn into distress. And we really have to make sure people have opportunities to make change. And then the final one is easy, and that is engage help. Look, I say it's easy, but nobody does it. I don't do it enough. Um, You know, we we don't do it. We need to engage help. Recruiting help from other people makes everything easier. And I've got a whole chapter on that in connection. And it's a really important point, isn't it? Because uh, hope, opportunity, making change all require a certain degree of resilience, positive mindset, and the capacity, as you say, um, uh, in the environment and political situation to do it. And sometimes we may need to engage someone else <laughs> to help us see those those possibilities. Um, I love that. I think that's a brilliant acronym, HOME. I'm going to remember that one. Well, I'll try to anyway. If, I, <laughs> if my ageing brain will age gracefully like a good cabernet. Uh, yeah. 
I wanted to ask you um, another very specific one because uh, vitamin D uh, is one I've always been interested in. Um, And I remember interviewing an alabaster white dermatologist who said no one should ever get a sun ray on their skin their entire lives. They should just take vitamin D um, through their lifespan. That's probably a slight exaggeration, but it's almost what she said. Uh, What's your view about vitamin D and health? What did you find and what, what are you recommending? So look, vitamin D is really important for health and really in the last decade to two decades, uh, for a while there it seemed like every week there was a new disease you could get if you were vitamin D deficient. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so you know, initially we associated vitamin D with bones, but you know, slowly it was like it's associated with MS, it's associated with dementia, it's associated with cognition, it's associated with heart. So you know, th- there's a lot vitamin D does for us that we didn't understand um, fully. The thing is, when they did the Cochrane Review, um, looking at supplemental vitamin D, it hasn't shown the benefit that yep. the observation of people with level... So, so supplements, we were like, well, why, why is that the case? What's going on? And so there are some very interesting papers coming out, um, really from the, the basic science field, showing that when we get vitamin D, I don't know if um, all the listeners are not something, well, we can eat it, but my God, you'd have to eat a heck of a lot to get the vitamin D we need. You mainly get vitamin D through sun. Now, the sun hits skin, and there's a chemical reaction that occurs in the skin that does a whole equation that converts um, chemicals into the vitamin D that our body can use. So there's some suggestion that that chemical reaction going on in our skin when we have sun exposure is giving a different sort of reaction, not just providing the vitamin D, but they think it's anti-inflammatory. Oh, I'm grinning from ear to ear because (laughs) I've been banging on that this to my patients all the time, that evolution has spent hundreds of thousands of years developing a mechanism to get our vitamin D and suddenly we think we're clever and we can just pop it in a pill. Yes, but there's just one little thing because evolution spent thousands of years making a glorious, beautiful earth and then humans came along and made an ozone hole. (laughs) Um, So so the thing about sun exposure, especially in Australia, because of course we're quite south, close to the southern pole, um, is we do have to be careful about sun exposure. And that's why we... You know, have quite a lot of vitamin D deficiency actually in our country um, because we really have to be careful about sun exposure, especially during those. You know, it used to be when I was a kid, it was between 11 and 3. The flip flop slapped little pelican. Was he a pelican? What was he? (laughs) (laughs) You know, he used to say between 11 and 3, and now it's between 9 and 4 if it's on the UV chart some summers. So, you know, it's getting worse that, that exposure. However, the good news is this you just have to put a forearm out in the sun. For 10 minutes. Yep. And so, you know, doing that is all you need. That's not going to get your skin cancer. And the reason I say forearm is because you can check your forearms for skin cancer. So as we all know, <laughs> with skin cancer, the important thing is vigilance. No. So, you know, don't, don't put your butt out in the sun because you'll never be able to check if there's any skin changes. But forearms are great. You can keep an eye on them. Cassandra, that's a fantastic point. We're going to have to wrap up because time has galloped ahead. But to finish on the concept that you shouldn't put your butt out into the sun, I think <laughs> it's absolutely... <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. That's been absolutely... Absolutely fascinating. We'll love to have you back on again another time. No worries, Nick. It's been a pleasure. That was Professor Cassandra Zerka, researcher, author, her new book, um, The Secret of Women's Healthy Aging, out Melbourne University Press. Rush out and buy it, whether you're a female, male, or just a person, buy it, because it's, it's, it's really, really good. <laughs> um, now, shortly we'll be talking with Elise Byrne, ethicist and researcher up in Queensland, about sharenting, the modern phenomenon of putting kids' stories, particularly health-related stories, on social media. Ever done that, dear listener? Well, don't go away. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the phone now, we're very lucky to have Elise Byrne. Good morning, Elise. Good morning, Dr Nick. How are you? I'm very well. We're talking to you. You're in Queensland, aren't you? How are things up there at the moment? I am. Things are things are good up here. We're we're quite fortunate to be avoiding lockdown at this moment in time, which I feel very guilty but very lucky about. Long may it last. Now, to, exactly. Least, just to set the scene for listeners, um, you're a nurse, but you're also an ethicist, aren't you? Just give us your background, if you would. 
Yeah, so look, my background is primarily in nursing and I've worked in a sort of paediatric environment for my whole nursing career and then recently have sort of taken on a little bit of extra study in the area of bioethics. And so um, what I'm talking about today is some research that I conducted as part of my um, Masters of Bioethics. And you, and you published a paper uh, on this uh, fairly recently, well, this year, um, and on the topic yeah. of a, a word that I had never come across before, sharenting. So do you want to explain what, what this is actually about? Yeah, so sharenting um, is a, a, a newish term that seems to be popping up. Um, and really what sharenting means is that um, it's the way that parents choose to share images or videos or news about their child on social media. So it's sort of public sharing of information about your child. Okay, and your particular focus is really on uh, children with illness or disability and, and parents sharing those kind of illness journeys, if you like, on social media. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And that is right, yes. So what are the sorts of reasons why parents would choose to do that? Well, there are a lot of reasons that parents do this, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that when you're a parent caring for a child with a significant illness or disability, that's a very um, unique style of parenting you know you're experiencing something that not many other people are experiencing um and to to use social media as a way to find other people that are experiencing the same thing as you is actually a really good um way to use it um a lot of parents choose to share to find other people that are going through the same thing Mm -hmm. um also to raise awareness about what their family and what their child is going through and sometimes as a means to, fi to actually find and gather information. So if you're a family that's dealing with a very rare um, illness or condition, you might have very limited access to information, whereas social media can provide you access to other people around the world that are having that same experience and sharing information with, with them. Elisa's panel beater here. It's wonderful to be in touch. This is really fascinating work. I am. Um, I'm really keen to know uh, where this, where you're taking this in, uh, in so far as rights are concerned. That seems to be the underlying um, issue that might be facing the decision makers on this. Um, yeah. And I and I know from your paper that you refer to Joel Feinberg as well. So maybe just to set us up with a, a general understanding um, of what we might be talking about when we talk about child's rights. Yeah, so child's rights have always been a really tricky area because um, there's a lot of debate either side of the argument that, you know, do children have rights because they're not considered autonomous beings. Um, and Joel Feinberg, um, back in 1980, kind of came up with a principle to help us circumnavigate this problem, and he called that the right to an open future. And what that means is that children have a set of rights that need to be held for them until they can enact those rights themselves um, and that people, parents, caregivers, healthcare professionals shouldn't do anything to violate those rights while a child is still a child so that they can use those rights when they're old enough. So the example that Joel Feinberg really uses is that um, you should not be, for example, surgically sterilising a child while they're a child because this would violate their future right to reproduce as an adult, and we know that children aren't physically able to re reproduce, so that would be violating their future right. And he's very, Joel Feinberg is very clear that, you know, this is really big deal stuff. He's not talking about, you know, enrolling your child into piano lessons, thereby denying their future as a concert violinist. It's really those very sort of big deal things. Sorry, Dr. Lee. Yeah, um, Elise, so just on this idea of the open future, because parents are making um, decisions about children's future all the time, and, and you've presented it to us on a scale, as does um, Feinberg, you know, ranging from something quite extreme like sterilisation, but even things like decisions about where you send your kids to school or what hobbies or interests you let them pursue and things like that, um, even even things relating to religion. So parents listening in right now will be interested to know where, where are the boundaries around this idea of an open future and protecting the child's open future? Yeah, and that, that has been actually a really big area for debate ever since Joel Feinberg came up with this principle. Um, so I guess things like sending your child to a private school or a public school or homeschooling or any of those things, um, Joel Feinberg would frame that in that a child has a right to education, so a parent should provide their child with education 
but it doesn't necessarily matter how they do that. Or, um, you know, it, it kind of comes down to, I mean, I can go very ethicsy here, but he talks a lot about a child's interests and, and different types of interests. So there are welfare interests, which children must have to keep them alive and safe. And then there are ulterior interests, which are more about goals and aspirations and future dreams that really you can't... Um, you can't conceive of those interests if your welfare isn't well managed. Um, so a lot of the open future really focuses on those kind of welfare interests. And I guess in my research and, you know, what I talk about is privacy really being a welfare interest for a child. And that's where I come from with the social media point and, of view. And at least in the article that you published in the Journal of Medical Ethics, um, this was a review of the literature, at least to some extent. Um, I imagine the literature, well, what I understood from reading the article, is actually fairly limited. I mean, on, uh, what data do we have uh, that helps us inform what we should do? Uh, very little is, is the answer to that. There is certainly some research that has been conducted from a legal standpoint um, in various parts of the world, and that really looks um, more at the way that the law protects children's rights to privacy from third parties. Um, and so cases that have gone before courts really rely on um, cases relating to, for example, celebrities whose children have been had photos taken of them by paparazzi and been published. Um, but not so much any instances where parents have um, made choices to share information about their their child. Um, in terms of research into children's opinions of this, it's, it's quite limited and really looks at... Um, there have been some studies that have interviewed adolescents who are at a point in their life where they're able to comment on sharenting, um, but certainly the data is very limited to young people who are competent to participate and don't have any um, sort of cognitive disability or um, issues with their ability to share their thoughts. Elise, a real tricky point for um, uh, ethics um, from a philosophical point of view, let alone a practical point of view, is around notions of intent and motivations. So where do we capture that intent in maybe the reasoning a parent might give for putting their um, child on social media? One of their intents might be for their own welfare. They, they want to know, they want others to know what they're going through as a parent of a child. They might be wanting to address issues we hear of about invisibility of disability um, and making this known to the communities around them. Um, and then maybe intent might be something similar we might deal with when we look at children during the Royal Children's Hospital Appeal, raising money for, um, for the hospitals and so on. Where does intent come into this ethics question? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I think, you know, certainly in my professional experience, and I'm sure that anyone who deals deals with parents on a regular basis would agree with me that parents' intentions are always the very best intentions for their ch child. You know, they want what's best for their child and their decisions are being made with really what they believe to be their child's best interests at heart. Um, but you're right in saying that we need to consider what the parents' interests are because they're going through a really challenging time themselves and I, I don't think it's really unreasonable for them to want to share their own experience when they're experiencing something very unique. And I guess this is where I come back to the importance of... Um, considering whether you make decisions to do this privately or publicly and how you kind of go about it. And your your sort of question about the children's hospital appeals, um, that's a really, really interesting question and not something that I didn't sort of take my research quite to that extent, but it's something I'd be really interested in pursuing in the future. Um, but I guess what I, what I consider really important is think about if this child um, grows up and, you know, becomes an adult, what might they think then when they're 21 about what's being shared of their medical information as a child? And I certainly think for myself, I don't want anyone to share my medical information as an, as an adult. Um, and children are kind of in this position where they're not really always being given that consideration. And they may have strong feelings about that when they reach adulthood. 
Elise, you mentioned um, sharing publicly or privately. Now, that might be um, something which is completely familiar to many listeners, but there may be people who don't understand what the difference between those two phrases are in terms of social media. So do you want to elaborate? um, Perhaps let's get on to some of the kind of advice, if you like, uh, guidelines. (laughs) If if we're going to go down this path as a parent, if you've got a kid with, let's say, an unusual rare illness and you want to do those things you're saying, awareness connect and maybe get more information and learn from other people so this is what you want to do just from your perspective what's the kind of advice uh, that you reckon is the safer or better way to go ahead yeah so most social media applications like instagram or facebook um, give you the opportunity to have a public profile which means that a fully public profile means that anybody can view it anyone can become your friend or your follower without your permission and really um, that information is there publicly visible by anybody who has access to the internet if they're able to find your profile. Um, Then social media applications have varying, usually varying degrees of privacy settings. So at their most, um, most private, your profile may not even be available to find um, and people may need to actually request to follow your account um, or request to be your friend or actually you have an ability to screen who gets to see that information and then once it's posted you can choose who will be viewing that information whether it's just your friends um, friends of your friends or whether anyone can view that information so I guess what I am encouraging parents who, who use social media, whether or not they share things, and I recommend this for all people, is check your privacy settings, see where they're at, um, and consider whether you are happy with that degree of privacy. I think one of the challenges with social media is it's not as clear um, how many people can view what you're posting. Um, sometimes I say, you know, if this is not information that you would put on a billboard on the side of the road, um, is this information that you want to share publicly on social media? Because you can actually have a similar reach. Um, It's just not as clear to see that. So, yeah, I guess my advice is always, at the very least, check your uh, privacy settings. Um, If you make a decision to share publicly, that's still your, you know, that's still your decision as a parent, I think. But um, I would probably caution you in considering what information you choose to share and how you would portray um, images of your child while they're experiencing illness on a public social media platform. Misdiagnosis here. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I've just got a question about the sort of public-private nature of some of this stuff because, uh, you know, as we know that anything once it's shared, even if it's shared to a private audience, can obviously be screen-captured or, or shared on from there. And once it once something is uploaded to the internet, it, it does have a digital footprint. Is, is this something that you're encouraging parents to consider as well? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, because I think um, the nature of social media and, you know, we talk about things going viral. Um, Once something has gone viral, it is completely out of your control and I think there have been instances of, um, you know, sometimes parents may choose to put something publicly on on the internet um, and that gets shared out of control that by the time they make the decision, actually, I didn't really want that out there, they can't get rid of it, you know. It's just, it's it's um, visible everywhere. So, yeah, I do think that's a really important thing to consider. Even, yes, you're right, even if you are sharing something privately, consider that it could be shared, it could be reposted, it could be even screen captured, you know, and that and someone else will have access to that picture, which they can then choose to share without your permission. And I, I was just wondering, I mean, you said it's relatively limited data at the moment, uh, you know, for obvious reasons of this technology not having been around for a super long time. But what um, information do you have or what accounts do you have from children who have felt uncomfortable with this stuff in their future? You know, well, you said you, there have been some interviews with adolescents. What have they yeah. said? Uh, look, the general theme is that, um, you know, adolescents at that point in their life are really trying to form their own identity. And um, a lot of the what adolescents commonly say is, I just wish it wasn't there. I wish my parents had... I'm embarrassed that those pictures are available to be seen and I wish my parents had considered my privacy. Um, and there is, you know, we do have some... You could kind of look at it in a, in a different way that some um, adult disability advocates are, are having some opinions on these topics and are able to reflect and say, well, look, that technology wasn't available when I was a child. Um, 
But if it was, I would have been mortified if my parents had had publicly shared me in that way. Um, yeah. Um, Elise, um, we're quickly running out of time, and Dr. Nick has got a question up his sleeve, but I'm just jumping in here. Um, yeah. When we're talking about social media in this um, domain, so much of the conversation is directed at the user, yeah? And yet, yes. yet it occurs to me that actually we should maybe be thinking about what we expect of the social media conglomerates, the corporates and, the, and so on. Um, from an ethical point of view, what can we push back on as users saying, hey, maybe you need to organise your settings in a particular way, give us more options in our settings, or are you satisfied that ethics can, we can take ethical considerations with the, with the current arrangements? Well, in, in the current arrangements, you know, quite a few social media platforms like Instagram or Facebook, for example, actually require users to be of minimum age of 13 to sign up and have their own account. Um, questionable whether 13 is old enough that that's that's an entire different um topic but they have put some sort of you know safeguards in place to try and protect children in that way um but they're very easy to get around you know you can enter a false date of birth a parent can set up an account for their children for their child um and sort of circumvent that safety mechanism um one thing that i did read during my research was a suggestion that um some other researchers had made to say, you know, could we have a function that says, you are posting a picture of a child, are you sure? Or, you know, something very simple like that, just to sort of pop up to say, are you sure that this is what you want to post? Whether that's something that could be achieved um, is questionable. But, yeah, I do think this is something that would is mutually beneficial for um, social media companies to consider as well as parents of young people on social media. And, and at least one of the things that's clear from what you've written is that there are benefits um, maybe to the child as well as to the parents from sharing particularly illness questions because with rare illnesses or unusual situations, people get more information, you do raise awareness, and that could be helpful to both parents and children. But if we, if we want to summarise, if parents are thinking of doing this, whether it's about illness or whether it's, <laughs> whether it's more banal, whether it's just about um, sharing photos of people's birthday parties and so on, um, what would be your um, rules or guidelines for people to, rem to remember? I just think really, it's really important to think, consider before you post and try and think about what your future child may think of what you're posting today. So your child in the future is going to have, you know, an adult life. Would they, how might they feel about this information that you want to post today and i think and that's, i'm not saying and i'm sorry and i'm sorry to cut across you because time is on, upon us and uh, that think about the future the future child perfect example thank you elise uh, thank you very much for being on today Thank you so much, Nick. That was Elise Burns, a bioethicist researcher from Queensland. Our oh, time has run out on us. It's just time to say thank you to Professor Cassandra Zerka and Elise Burns. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.